I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning. Uh, we'll be reading primarily in Psalms chapter 63. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in the front, in the pew in front of you. At the beginning of this Psalms, uh, we're going to find a heading which reads, A Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. And before we get too far into the actual passage itself, I think it's critical that we understand some of the context uh, in which David writes this psalm. There are two general opinions as to the historical context of this passage. Uh, the first is that it was written by David as he fled from King Saul. And you can read about that in 1 Samuel chapter 23 and 24. The second opinion, and the one that I have found to be most probable, uh, is found in 2 Samuel chapter 15, as David, who is now king of Israel, finds himself once again fleeing to the wilderness of Judah. This time, however, it's not just any old enemy that's pursuing him, but rather his own son, Absalom. And if you recall from last week, uh, Pastor Don read from 2 Samuel uh, chapter 12, which is when the prophet Nathan comes to confront King David about his adulterous affair with Bathsheba. And starting in verse 11 of chapter 12, we read together, Thus said the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you, evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives from before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lay with your wives in the sight of this son, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. Now, an interesting note is that this was fully fulfilled through Absalom, who not only revolted against his father David, but also lay with his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel, which you can read in 2 Samuel 16, verses 20 and 23. Now, the main reason why I believe that this is the period in which our psalm is uh, contextualized this morning is because as we read in verse 11, or as we will read in verse 11 of our passage, David very clearly refers to himself as being king. You now, while David did flee into the wilderness from Saul, he was not yet reigning as the king of Israel. And this was made clear in a few different passages, but one would be 1 Samuel 24 where David spared the life of Saul as he was hiding in a cave. And having cut off a corner of Saul's robe, David is struck with guilt for what he had just done. Reading in verse 8 of chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 24, reading, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord, the King. So although David had been chosen by God, and anointed by Samuel, and although Saul had already been rejected by God as king, David had not yet become king over Israel. So it's in this context of David in the wilderness of Judah being pursued by his own son Absalom that we'll read our passage together in Psalms chapter 63. It says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. 
my flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my lips will praise you with sorry, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. Now I was really struck as I reflected on this passage over the past few weeks. As far too often I find myself reading and, and not really taking the time to dig into what was actually going on when the passage was written. And there's no denying that in and of itself it's clearly a beautiful psalm. But when we view it through the context which we discussed earlier, it, it begins to take on a whole new depth. In verse 1 we read, O God, you are my God. Right off the bat, I want us to take note of two things in this opening statement. First, David identifies that it is God himself who who he is speaking to. And secondly, we get a sense of just who God was to King David. He wasn't just some guy that was there to chat when he was bored, needed a hand, or maybe he was a few bucks shy in the checkout line. No, God, or no, David begins our past this morning by identifying the fact that God was his God, his Savior, and his Lord. He had a, pers- a deep personal relationship with the Heavenly Father that far surpassed a casual chat with a stranger. This opening statement really sets the tone then for the remainder of the passage. And there are three main points that I want to take note of from the passage this morning. And to make things a bit easier, I started them all with the same letter. Hey, simple things, I'm telling you. First off is David's desire for God. Secondly is David's devotion to God. And finally is David's deliverance by God. So let's start on the first one, David's desire for God. Starting in verse 1. Read, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. In the second half of verse 1, we begin to see the heart of a man who is looking to meet with a God that he knew so well. David said, earnestly, I seek you. The Webster's Dictionary defines the word earnestly as this, in an earnest and serious manner, not lightly, casually, or flippantly. 
Now, how often do you and I get caught up in this kind of casual, nonchalant approach to our relationship with Christ? Part of one of my favorite passages in Jeremiah chapter 29, where God is speaking to the children of Israel through the prophet Jeremiah, verse 13 says this, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Proverbs 8, 17 says, I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently find me. And Jesus, again in Matthew 7, 7, says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened unto you. David then continues on to flesh this thought out by putting it into a a visually relatable context for us. It says, My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Now, most of you will, can recall and are experiencing the same hot, dry summer that I have been. Uh, um, and I don't know about you, but when you're outside doing physical activity, whether you're working, whether you're playing with the kids, you start to get kind of a tacky feel in your mouth. And after about a half hour, 45 minutes, you don't have quite as much energy Some of you don't take quite as long to get there as others. My kids can go all day, and I do not understand it, and I'm not quite as mature as some of you here. Um, But David is saying here that his desire for his relationship with God and to meet with God is intense like the desire of one's thirst for water when your body is parched and weary. Keep in mind that while David's writing this, he's literally in the the wilderness wandering around. In fact, if you read the whole story in 2 Samuel, you'll find this passage in chapter 17, starting in verse 27. It says, When David came to Mahanaim, Shobi the son of Nahash from Reba of the Ammonites, and Machir the son of Amiel from Lodabar, and Barzaliah the Gileadite from Rogalim brought beds, basins, and earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans, and lentils, you could pass on the lentils, honey and curds, and sheep and cheese from the herd, for David and the people with him to eat. For they said, The people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. You see, David knew exactly what it was like to be parched and longing for a drink of water. And he describes his intense desire for God in the exact same way. Now, as we move into verse 2, we see David reflecting on who he personally knows God to be. Verse 2 says, So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Or in some translations, depending on which translation you're reading from, it might say, I have seen you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. You see, it isn't as if David has just found himself in the wilderness and thought, well, hey, maybe, maybe now might be a good time to touch base with that old buddy of mine, 
Maybe he can help me out. No. David says, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. David knew God. And he had spent time in the very presence of God. And it was that closeness and fellowship that he desired while he was wandering in the wilderness of Judah. This brings us to the second point, and that's David's devotion to God. As we carry on in verse 3, we read, Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich foods, my, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you on my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Now, it, it doesn't take much digging to start to see just what David's relationship with God meant to him. He starts out in verse 3 by putting it very bluntly that the steadfast love of God was better to him than life itself. Now, I don't know about you, but that made me do a big heart check. Do I value the love of God more than my own life? If someone was to walk through that door and threaten my life, would I be able to say with confidence, go ahead, do what you want. I love God and God loves me and that's all that matters to me. You can't take that away. Verse 4 continues on, So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. So David says, because of, because of that great steadfast love of God that is better than life itself, I will lift up my hands in praise to God. And now we come to where most of us with Mennonites roots, Mennonite roots can re relate really well. It says, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. Mm-hmm. Now, this isn't no quarter pounder satisfied. Oh, no. And I'm going to butcher this because I don't speak German. But this is more of a Vranikia and Varsh and a good old helping of Schmottfat. And for those of you who don't know what I'm just saying, well, that's pierogies and Mennonite sausage and cream gravy. Mm-hmm. And David says, that is how my soul will be satisfied with you, God continues on, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, my right hand upholds you. Or sorry, your right hand upholds me. In the presence of his God, David said, I will be satisfied. And I will praise you when I remember and meditate on you. Why? Because he was his father. Now, I don't know about, I don't know how many of you have had the chance to see in real life 
the quick little example that David used here. But for those that don't know, most fowl, whether it be chickens, ducks, geese, when they're threatened or when it rains, they'll gather their young offspring under their wings to both shelter and protect them. Renaissance writer Ulysses Aldervandi described how at the first sign First sign of a predator, mother hens will immediately gather their chicks under the shadow of their wings, and with this covering, they put up such a fierce defense, striking fear into their opponent in the midst of a frightful clamor, using both wings and beak. They would rather die for their chicks than seek safety in flight. See, God was more to David than just a casual friend. And as a young bird clings to its mother, David too was wholeheartedly devoted to God, his provider and his protector. This brings us to the third and and final point. And that's David's deliverance by God. Verses 9 to 11 says, But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth, They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals, but the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Here we see somewhat of a stark comparison to to one whose life is upheld by God. See, ultimately, David trusted that God would once again deal with those who were seeking his life. And that's exactly what happened. David gathered his men and sent them out to fight against the men of Israel who had turned to follow Absalom. And 2 Samuel 18, starting in verse 6, says, So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. The men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. Now, one could say that this battle was won by the strength of men, but David's rejoicing wasn't in the strength of the men that he sent to fight that day, but rather in the God that granted the victory. David, up to this point, had experienced God's hand of deliverance numerous times, starting all the way back while he was shepherding his father's sheep. Our passage then ends in verse 11, where David says, But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult or praise For the mouths of liars will be stopped. Now, I often have a a hard time sometimes with these psalms, and I go, wow, how do I take something like this, and how do I apply it to my own life? Because very clearly, David had a passion and a passionate desire for his relationship with God. But what what can I take out of it today, and how can I apply this to my own life? Well, I think it's fair to say that we all at one point or another will find ourselves 
in situations that could be referred to as a wilderness situation. Maybe it's financially, relationally, spiritually. Maybe it's physically. So what do we do when those times come? I think the life of David in this instance provided some great insight into a godly wilderness response. If any of you have studied survival at all, who's your biggest enemy when you're lost by yourself? You. Simply put, you are your own biggest enemy. And yet, you are also the one piece of the situation that you can control. You may not be able to control the situation that you're currently enveloped in, but what you can choose to do is how, or what you can do is choose how you react or respond to it. You see, David could have just as easily, before he even left Jerusalem, he could have just thrown up his hands and said, well, hey, it was fun while it lasted, right? And let his son take over. But instead, he chose to turn to God. See, far too often, I, when I find myself in a tough time, when I, I just, things aren't going my way, it's a little bit dry and dusty, I find myself, as, especially as a guy, saying, hey, watch this, just, I'll fix this. And quickly it becomes this reoccurring, trailing repetition of I, me, me, I'm going to do this. And often it ends up in a situation that either is no better or is worse than where I started. Why is it so hard to turn to God when things get tough? It's not that He's not there or that He doesn't care what I'm going through. In John 16, as Jesus is speaking to his disciples shortly before his crucifixion, he encouraged them with these words. He said, Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. See, Jesus promised his disciples that they would face tribulations or hardships in life. But more importantly, he encourages them that he has overcome the world. In other words, in the world you will face hardships and trials, but Jesus has dominion of the world in which you're facing those situations. Your wilderness is small. Not insignificant, but small in the hand of our Heavenly Father. David, in our passage this morning, was in the middle of a wilderness period. And yet here he is, praising God. How? The biggest step is to focus our eyes on the one unchanging source of hope, Jesus Christ. That first step in changing our focus is often the most difficult step to take. 
But when we do, there's a change of perspective that takes place. Isabella Lilius Trotter, or more well-known as just Lilius Trotter, was born into a wonderful godly home. At the age of 12, she lost her father, and a short 13 years later, her mother as well, leaving her as a 25-year-old woman now to carry on with life. During the next 10 years, uh, she took up painting, is well known for her paintings that she's left behind. But she also was called by God to missions, specifically to the devout Arab Muslims in Algeria. So in, beginning in 1888, uh, she began serving overseas and did so for the remaining 40 years of her life. And it was there that she penned these words, which later inspired a writer by the name of Helen Horth Lemmel to write a hymn that I'm sure that many of you will recognize. Now I'm going to read an excerpt here written by David Fielding. And it's a bit long, but bear with me. It says, An extract from her booklet, Focused, which inspired this hymn, is quoted below, and in reading in reading it, we might ask ourselves just how focused on Jesus Christ we are today. How great is our need to turn our eyes fully on him. And this is Lilius Trotter's words from her booklet, Focused. Oh, do I have the right one here? I do. If the sun of righteousness has risen upon our hearts, there is an ocean of grace and love and power lying all around us, an ocean to which all earthly light is but a drop, and it's ready to transfigure us, gathered up, focused lives intent on one aim, Christ. These are the lives on which God can concentrate blessedness. It is all for all by a law as unvarying as any law that governs the material, uni the material universe. We see the principle shadowed in the trend of science, the telephone and the wireless in the realm of sound, the use of radium and ultraviolet rays in the realm of light. All these work by gathering into focus currents and waves that dispersed cannot serve us. In every branch of learning and workmanship, the tendency of these days is to specialize, to take up on one point, or sorry, to take up one point and follow it to the utmost. And Satan knows well the power of concentration. If a soul is likely to get under the sway of the inspiration, this one thing I do, he will turn all his energies to bring in side interests that will shatter the gathering intensity. And they lie all around, these interests. Never has it been so easy to live a half dozen good, harmless worlds, live in a half a dozen good, harmless worlds at once. Art, music, social science, games, the following, of some, the following of some profession, and so on. And between them, we run the risk of drifting about, the good hiding the best, even more effectually that it could be hidden by downright frivolity with its smothered heartache at its own emptiness. It's easy to find 
It's easy to find out whether our lives are focused, and if so, where the focus lies. Where do our thoughts settle when consciousness comes back in the morning? Where do they swing back when the pressure is off during the day? Does this test not give the clue? Then dare have it out with God, and after all, that is the shortest way. Dare to lay bare your whole life in being before Him and ask Him to show you whether or not all is focused on Christ and His glory. Dare to face the fact that unfocused, good and useful as it may seem, it will prove to have failed of its purpose. What does this focusing mean? Study the matter and you will see that it means two things, gathering in all that can be gathered and letting the rest drop. Are we ready for a cleavage to be wrought through the whole range of our lives, all aims, all ambitions, all desires, all pursuits? Shall we dare to drop them if they cannot be gathered sharply and clearly into the focus of this one thing I do? Will it not make life narrow, this focusing? In a sense, it will, just as the mountain path grows narrower, for it matters more and more the higher we go where we set our foot. But there is always, as it narrows, a wider and wider outlook and pure, cleaner air. Narrower, or narrow as Christ's life was narrow, this is our aim. Narrow as regards self-seeking, broad as the love of God to all around. Is there anything to fear in that? In the, and in the narrowing and focusing, the channel will be prepared for God's power. Like the stream hemmed between the, red, the rock beds that wells up in a spring, like the burning glass that gathers the rays into an intensity that will kindle, kindle fire, it is, a worth, it is worthwhile to let God see what he can do with these lives of ours when to live as Christ Turn full your soul's vision to to Jesus and look and look at him. And a strange dimness will come over all that is apart from him. And the divine attrait by which God's saints are made, even in this 20th century, will lay hold of you. For he is worthy to have all there is to be had in the heart that he died to win. Now, years later, after reading these words, Helen Howarth Lemmel wrote this familiar song. It says, O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Through death into life everlasting, he passed, and we follow him there. O'er us, sin no more has dominion, for more than conquerors we are. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. His word shall not fail you, he promised. Believe him, and all will be well. Then go to a world that is dying, his perfect salvation to tell. Would you sing the last chorus with me? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. 
Look full in his wonderful face And the things of earth will grow strangely dim In the light of his glory and grace Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so good to us. Lord, when we're faced with turmoil or hard, dry periods in life, God, I pray that we would turn and fix our eyes upon your wonderful face. And in the light of who you are and what you've done for us, that we too would be able to lift our voices in praise to you. God, I pray for anyone here today that, that doesn't know you, that hasn't trusted you as their personal Savior. God, I pray that today would be the day, Lord, that we would turn and fix our eyes on you. Yesterday is past, today is a gift, and tomorrow isn't promised. So God, I, I pray that you would help us to live today in light of eternity. I pray all this in your name. Amen.